This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A Dane County judge held a hearing today over whether to appoint an investigator in the 2015 police killing of Tony Robinson. The ongoing petition is an unusual one. It uses a little-known state statute that allows members of the public to ask a judge to pursue criminal charges in cases when a prosecutor declines to do so. Normally, pursuing charges would be left up to the district attorney, but following his investigation in 2015, Dane County DA Ismail Ozan declined to pursue charges against Madison police officer Matt Kenny for shooting and killing Robinson. Not many cases in Wisconsin use this section of state statute to ask a judge to reconsider, and because it's so uncommon, determining which pieces of evidence would be allowed is unclear. Today's hearing centered on the allowable evidence to be used in a future hearing, which has not been scheduled. Judge Juan Colas is expected to issue a forthcoming written decision on the rules for that hearing. The Madison Police Department is looking to increase their budget in ways that won't affect Madison taxpayers. The Capital Times reports that three grants to help fund the police department are currently making their way through city committees to potentially add hundreds of thousands of dollars to the police budget. In the 2022 city budget, the police department was given around $80 million, mostly used in wages and benefits. Not everyone is on board with those grants. Brenda Conkle, a former city alder and member of committee approving the grants, said that she worries the money will lead to over-policing instead of community outreach. It's up to the Common Council to approve or reject the grant money. A group of moms is looking for some help in supporting East High School students ahead of the upcoming school year. Moms on a Mission began last year after the school saw a series of fights and behavioral incidents. The group of moms stand outside the school during the lunch break to give out snacks, talk to students, and de-escalate situations. And with 1,600 students going on lunch all at the same time, the group is looking for volunteers to help as many kids as possible, as well as money to help buy snacks for the fall semester, reports Channel 3000 News. And finally, Middleton officials have announced that no politicians will be allowed to march in this year's Middleton Good Neighbor Festival Parade, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. In previous years, the city allowed politicians who represented the area to march in the parade as long as they didn't engage in any campaigning. But after local conserv conservative blogger David Blaska said that the policy would disc discriminate against Republican challengers from joining the fund, the city decided to ban all politicians from participating. The parade will run through downtown Middleton this Sunday. And now on to today's top stories. Nurses at UW Health have been working to reform their union since 2019 and have only ramped up their efforts over the pandemic. And while UW Health continues to say that Act 10 banned all unionization at the hospital, the nurses are ready to put that to the test with an upcoming strike. WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout has the story. The nurses at UW Health have voted to go on strike next month if their union is not recognized by UW Health leadership. The nurses at UW Health have been fighting for a union since 2019, when even before the pandemic they sought solutions to understaffing and long hours at the hospital. The issue comes from whether or not nurses at UW Health can be considered public employees. After Act 10 was passed in 2011, the UW Hospital and Clinics Board dissolved, forcing the nurses to negotiate with the similarly-sounding UW Hospital and Clinics Authority, or UWHCA. The UWHCA have repeatedly said that, due to Act 10, they are unable to recognize any unionization efforts from the nurses. While the nurses had a union before Act 10, that union expired in 2014. But multiple legal memos, including one by State Attorney General Josh Call and another by the state's nonpartisan Legislative Council, a group that advises policymakers on legal and policy research, have stated that Act 10 only removed the obligation for UW Health to recognize a union. They are still able to do it voluntarily. 
Why Push for a Union? Amelia Zepnik, a float nurse with UW Health, says that they just want a seat at the table. The biggest thing that the pandemic has really shown us is just how little say we at the bedside have around the policies that are being made. I think a big thing is focusing on staffing retention and recruitment and providing safer staffing ratios. Sepnik says that before the pandemic, she would be in charge of around four patients each day. Usually, two of those patients needed little attention, while one would need a little bit more attention due to how sick they were, and one needed total care for all their bodily functions. But after the pandemic... And now what I see is routinely... We don't have enough staff to have four patients per nurse. We might have five during the day. And in addition, two or three of them might be total care patients where you need to work and coordinate with your nursing assistant to turn them and help them get cleaned up and help them eat and do all of those things. Maybe you'll have a independent patient. Likely you won't. And it's not been uncommon for me to have more than one medically unstable patient at a time which is incredibly stressful as a nurse providing care. The nurses held their vote yesterday and said that they will strike from 7 a.m. on September 13th to 7 a.m. on September 16th, unless UW Health officials recognize their union. Justin Giebel is a trauma and ICU nurse here in Madison. Giebel started at UW Health just a month before the pandemic hit Madison and says that they are striking because they are out of options. We as professionals and essentially whistleblowers are saying that this is something that needs to happen. And if you won't play ball, then I guess we kind of have to go with these drastic measures. I don't think that this is anything that nurses necessarily want to do, but this is something that we're kind of being forced Our hand is being forced here a little bit. As soon as COVID hit Madison, Giebel was sent to the respiratory unit where he took care of COVID patients for almost two years. He says that the combination of working in such a dire situation right out of the gate, mixed with COVID denialism and a lack of resources from the administration, has taken a toll. Giebel says that the nurses at UW Health don't feel like they have the backing of the administration at the hospital. It's really disheartening because this is meant to be a profession for we're just here to help people. And if we feel that we need resources, we're not, we honestly are not asking for all that much. It's just we need these certain things to be able to perform our duties to the best of our abilities. And you're driving people with altruistic intentions away from a profession that requires that. And it's just really sad to see. UW Health officials declined to be interviewed by WORT, but in a statement, they reiterated that they did not believe unionization was legal at the hospital. UW Health called the strike disappointing and said that they treat staff better than other hospitals in the region, with a nurse turnover rate at half of the national average. According to Indeed.com, the average salary for a registered nurse in Wisconsin is around $40 an hour, lower than the national average of about $44 an hour. And according to job postings on Indeed, most UW Health nursing jobs in Madison start at a minimum of $30 an hour. Despite this pay disparity, Keeble says that money is not the main force in the drive for a union. I'm disappointed that Dr. Kaplan is trying to make it about pay when we've been sounding the alarm saying it's about patient safety for a good portion or essentially since the beginning of the organizing effort. In their statement today, UW Health said that a nurse's strike would harm patients, but Giebel says that the administration at the hospital has already been harming patients with the decisions they've made that led to decreased staffing at the hospital. We, we had a group of nurses. They were ICU nurses, and they were part of a group called SOS, or Save Our Shift. And so when I first started at UW, I was on a general care, intermediate care unit. And if I had a patient who wasn't doing well, I could page them and say, hey, I would like a set of ICU nurse eyes laid on this patient. And, you know, they were responsible for responding to rapid responses if a patient wasn't doing well and might need an escalation in the level of care. And the administration began tacking job responsibilities onto that department that were not part of their job description when they signed up. And so a large portion of them have left. And there are often nights where those nurses, there is no one from that department working. 
On nights with no SOS nurses, when a patient goes critical, a nurse from the trauma department has to leave their own patients to help care for others, spreading the workload thin, delaying response times, and ultimately endangering patients, Giebel says. Giebel also says that on top of making their intentions well known now, they will give a more official notice to the hospital 10 days before the strike so that they can prepare for the striking nurses. Amelia Zepnik agrees, saying that they have given plenty of notice to UW Health to prepare for patients before they go on strike. I would also state that, you know, our responsibility is to give them that notice so that they can make accommodations, reroute patients, provide alternative staffing, do all those things, and that that's their responsibility. I would also argue that the reason we're striking and trying to get a union is for patient safety. We want to provide quality and safe care for our patients. And the policies that are being enacted that we aren't seeing a lot of voice in are inhibiting our ability to provide quality care. For years, nurses at UW Health have been steadfast about why they're applying pressure. They say that they're too understaffed to properly care for patients and don't feel supported by hospital administration. Back in 2019, we spoke with Sherry Singer, who at the time had been a nurse there for 17 years. Here's what she had to say then. Over the last nine years, the hospital guaranteed the nurses that they would take care of us and that we did not need a union. Slowly, one by one, little changes started happening. And in the last two years, things have drastically changed. And now nurses have terrible morale. We are being asked to work overtime constantly. We're short all the time. Patient ratios have gone up. Our access to support staff has changed in the hospital. Our education has greatly decreased. So the overall atmosphere is just it's very low. At the time, the nurses hoped to have their union recognized by the new year. Now, three years later, the nurses say that they are ready to take drastic measures to have their union recognized. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. An updated report on election subversion threats flagged Wisconsin as the state with the highest number of proposed bills overhauling election administration. For more, we hand it over to reporter Emily Kasinger, who spoke with Elizabeth Pearson of Law Forward, a group that co-authored the report. Wisconsin is number one in legislative efforts to overhaul election administration, according to an updated report published yesterday. The report by States United Democracy Center, Protect Democracy and Law Forward, tracks legislative and other attempts at increasing the risk of so-called election subversion, which the report defines as, quote, the risk that an election's declared outcome does not reflect the choice of the voters, unquote. The report breaks down different ways a bill proposed by a state legislature can do this. And according to those metrics, Wisconsin state legislature led the way, proposing 38 bills in the last legislative session to rehaul how the state's elections are run. For an explainer of what the report found, I spoke with Elizabeth Pearson, a legal fellow and attorney at Law Forward. The goal of this report is really to sound an alarm, kind of a warning bell, about threats we're seeing to our democracy, both in Wisconsin, where Law Forward is active, and also just nationwide. The report details state-by-state trends to capture how state legislatures are amending their election laws. Per the U.S. Constitution, rules for how elections are run are largely handled by the states. So states have some leeway in deciding the, quote, times, places, and manner, unquote, of elections. This discretion allows for state differences in election details like, for example, voter ID laws. The report tracks new election-related bills, flagging ones they think may increase the risk of election subversion based on a five-category system. Pearson explains. So this is really an update on our May uh, report of this year which focused almost exclusively on the legislative proposals. And for that, we're looking at bills introduced by state legislatures that we think increase the risk of election subversion. So again, that we think increase the risk that the will of the voters would not determine the outcome of an election. And in that category of legislative proposals, we actually had five subcategories, and those were usurping control over election results, requiring partisan or unprofessional reviews of elections, seizing power over election responsibilities, creating unworkable burdens in election administration, 
and imposing disproportionate criminal or other penalties. Wisconsin has proposed 38 bills that Law Forward has flagged. 29 of these bills failed. Seven were vetoed by Governor Tony Evers, and two constitutional amendments were advanced to be voted on by the next session. Those amendments forbid the use of private donations or grants to be used for election administration and place limitations on how state and federal funds can be used. Wisconsin was the state with the highest number of those election overhaul bills proposed. Arizona was a close second, at 35 to R38. Tennessee was third, at 18. I asked Pearson what makes Wisconsin ripe for election legislation. One reason for that is probably our gerrymandered legislature, which kind of lends itself to people taking more extreme positions because so many seats there are safe for whichever party holds them. This coincides with a 2020 study from Harvard's Electoral Integrity Project that found that in the 2020 presidential election, Wisconsin ranked last among the states in a, quote, district boundaries index, a measure of experts' perceived fairness of electoral district lines. It also ranked low in the electoral law index, a measure of how election laws restrict citizens' rights, minority voters, and favor one party over another. Law Forward, States United, and Protect Democracy are not the only ones measuring election integrity. The Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, ranked Wisconsin ninth in election integrity. The state earned high marks for voter ID implementation. Closer to home, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, has also investigated Wisconsin's so-called election integrity, criticizing absentee ballot measures but determining, quote, in all likelihood, more eligible voters cast ballots for Joe Biden than Donald Trump. To these other groups, and to those who may be skeptical of Law Forward's report, Pearson says this. The state Supreme Court upheld the 2020 election result as going to Joe Biden. And every single study of the 2020 election, including by will, as well as the nonpartisan uh, Legislative Research Bureau, has also found that those elections were free and fair and that Joe Biden won them. The report also points to the potential consequences of an upcoming Supreme Court case that could give state legislatures even more power to set election rules and radically change the way elections are run. The case, Moore v. Harper, opens the possibility for the nation's high court to decide that state legislatures have near-absolute power to regulate state and federal elections, taking away power from governors, secretaries of state, and elections commissioners. To those who may hear this or read the updated report in despair, Pearson has this suggestion. We have elections coming up where democracy is on the ballot, and people just need to be aware of that and vote accordingly. Reporting for WORT News, this is Emily Kasinger. It's now 6.23 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, we reported about a lawsuit filed this week by a group of criminal defense lawyers who are suing the state of Wisconsin, saying that the lack of public defenders in the state is leaving some people to sit for months in jail without representation. Today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Amanda Reich, a former public defender here in Wisconsin, about why that shortage exists. Now, this is a shortened version of their full conversation, so you can get the full interview on the WORT website. 
So now I know that public defenders here in Wisconsin, they're a little bit different than public defenders in other states. So can you sort of just walk me through what you would do on a sort of day-to-day basis as a public defender? What do what do public defenders do? Sure. So if you're a staff attorney with the public defender's office, that means that you are an, an attorney and lawyer are terms that are used interchangeably. A lot of people don't realize that. So when someone refers to someone, a lawyer, an attorney as a public defender, We are attorneys or lawyers just like anybody else, and our employer is the public defender's office. So in Wisconsin, the public defense system is set up as a state agency. That's not true in all states. In some states, it's just every attorney is a private attorney, whether they're solo or they work for a firm, and they take public defender cases for indigent clients on a contract basis. Here in Wisconsin, we have a public defense system set up through the state. So we have the public defender, who is the head of the agency, that being Kelly Thompson. And then all of the attorneys that work for the public defenders are employed as salary staff attorneys through the state of Wisconsin. Um, And so we deal with the Department of Administration. We have a state budget. There are statutory codes and administrative codes and regulations that we have to abide by. And the, one of the main differences in that regard is that my employer is the state of Wisconsin. I don't get to choose cases, and you can't retain me. My clients come from a system that is set up, designed to do applications with people who are facing criminal charges and a small subset of some civil cases who meet the poverty guidelines and can't otherwise afford representation, so they are assigned to me. They don't pay me directly for my services. Um, They pay a small fee to the state of Wisconsin, and I represent them no matter whether they have a low-level case, a high-level case, what their income is. Once I'm assigned to their case, I represent them through the whole entire trial process. So on a day-to-day basis, it would look a little different, whereas in private practice, part of what I do involves marketing and um, retaining private clients, getting that client base established. As a public defender, the way that you're assigned cases is through a point system. So that is set up through the administrative code that each case type is assigned a certain point level, and each attorney is required um, by, by nature of their employment to reach a certain number of points each year. And so when cases get assigned to me, let's just say hypothetically a low level felony is one point. And in a certain year, I have to get 200 points. If all I took was low-level felonies, I would then have to have 200 cases if they were each worth one point. Um, On top of that, we also, as public defenders, have administrative duties that are incorporated into the criminal justice system as a whole that are recognized as having very short deadlines, very quick turnarounds, um, very sensitive issues that clients are dealing with, whether it be mental health, whether it be uh, getting arrested and being incarcerated and needing to get out in a timely fashion. Most people can't afford attorneys or retain attorneys that quickly. And the system recognizes that in a way that public defender attorneys are assigned to handle those duties without potentially ever representing that client. So on a day-to-day basis, not only do I get assigned cases and have to go to court for the clients who are actually assigned to me, whether it's trials or motion hearings or negotiations with the prosecutor, I also have to do, had to do what I would call administrative duties that would include, for instance, going to the jail every afternoon and meeting with 5, 10, 15, 20 people gathering information from them and handling their custody hearing to try to get them bail with the possibility that they get out of jail. Those people may never be my clients, but that's just part of the system that is recognized as being really difficult to get an attorney in time for that. But at the same time, you're entitled to counsel at that hearing. So public defenders do a lot of work in the system that doesn't necessarily ultimately lead to them representing that individual. 
And so now, yesterday, I reached out to you because we covered the lawsuit that was filed against the state of Wisconsin, that really what that lawsuit boils down to is uh, there's not enough public defenders here in Wisconsin, leaving people uh, to sit without representation. Now, obviously, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but sort of just from your point of view as a former public defender, uh, why is there a shortage of public defenders here in Wisconsin? And then sort of going from there, why did you leave your position as a public defender? Sure. Um, there are kind of two different avenues of looking at this here. I First and foremost, I absolutely loved the time that I spent working at the public defender's office. Originally, I envisioned being a public defender for my entire life. Um, it, it turned out that at a certain point, not because of COVID, but it was sort of highlighted by the pandemic times, it was too much. The caseload was too much. The expectation was too much. The clients expected too much um, by way of me being more than an attorney and sort of also being a social worker and a counselor and an advocate in other arenas than the field of law. And it was just kind of crushing. Um, Even working from home and not having to commute, I was working 60 to 80 hours a week, which some people might have recognized I worked a lot before that as well. But at the end of the day, there's a, a shortage of staff attorneys because the workload is just overwhelming. Um, you don't, you often don't get to meet with your clients as much as you would. You don't get to know them as much as you would. There are, are motions that you may forego filing because you're working on three other cases with deadlines that day and you just don't have time to do it. Um, and I, I wasn't homeless. I wasn't broke, but I think that um, the system, the pay system and the structure, um, we had a, a different salaries than prosecutors, different salaries than judges. And at the end of the day, as a single person in my early 30s, having to pay for my own house, my own student loans, all of my own bills, um, without even the thought of having a family um, that I would have to pay for, it just simply was financially not sufficient. Um, and I wasn't living any sort of extravagant lifestyle, but the private practice offered financially an opportunity that was more lucrative than working for the state. Um, right now, a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people experienced financial crises when COVID hit. I actually had three jobs when I was working at the public defenders, two jobs in addition to my state public defender job. Um, and I lost those jobs temporarily when COVID happened, and it was just too much. Um, so a lot of people experienced the same thing. A lot of people realized they wanted to spend more time with their more time with their family, and their perspective on life really shifted. So I think that played a big role in it. The other thing, though, is that, like I said, when I left, I decided to still take public defender cases through the assigned counsel division. And part of the lawsuit that was filed also relates to that. And part of the ongoing litigation and petitions that were filed in the Supreme Court a couple of years ago that are also sort of the subject of this lawsuit acknowledged that not only are there not enough public defenders, but the private attorneys who take the overflow cases for the public defenders, whether it's because they have too many cases, they have conflict cases, those cases aren't being handled either. And they simply, there simply aren't private attorneys who are willing or able to take those cases at the rates that they are currently being compensated for. For all of the reasons that someone would have left the public defender's office, they're then facing a situation where they're in private practice doing, hopefully, uh, as many of us are, better. Um, and it's difficult then to have a willingness to handle public defender cases when it's sort of reverting back to a lot of the things that I didn't necessarily enjoy about my state employment without all of the benefits that I was reaping when I was a state employee. Um, So I think the lawsuit kind of addresses both of those issues, that there aren't enough staff attorneys, but there also aren't enough private lawyers who can help alleviate the caseload that the public defenders is facing that their assigned counsel division has. I've been talking with Amanda Reek, a former public defender here in Wisconsin, about the shortage of public defenders facing the state. Amanda, thank you again so much for coming on and talking with me. No problem. 
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, we air an excerpt from the Out of the Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, host D. Starr speaks with Dante Cottingham, a peer support specialist with Expo, ex-incarcerated people organizing. Cottingham spent 26 years in prison and tells us about what it's like to raise a daughter while incarcerated. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with... My name is Dante Cottingham from Racine, Wisconsin. For the people that don't know you, Dante, uh, can you give us a little bit about yourself and who you are and where you're from? As I stated before, my name is Dante Cottingham from Racine, Wisconsin. I was born and raised there. Unfortunately, when I hit 17 years old, I made a huge mistake and got sentenced to prison, got a life sentence, and I ended up doing 26 and a half, 27 years in prison. Just recently was released, uh, maybe two and a half months ago, and I've been home, and it's beautiful. Yeah, that's a, that's a blessing. So what prison were you in? I was 17. Back in 1995, 96, they were sending all the 17-year-olds over to Green Bay Correctional, which was a maximum uh, security prison in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And is that where you spent the majority of your time? I did about 10 years there. So how much time did you serve altogether? You said 27, right? 26 and a half, almost 27 years. Uh, So what are some of the things that you learned over the course of 26 and a half years? Well, the first, first of all, I had to figure out why I was mad. Uh, when I committed my crime, I, uh, I got convicted and I committed a homicide. Um, they got I was getting into a lot of stuff. Like I said, I was living the same way in prison. I was living on the street. So I got into some stuff and they got tired of me. They put me in solitary confinement for three years straight. Um, when I was there, um, once you're there for a certain amount of time, you, you the things that you were using for a distraction no longer they were, they were no longer effective. You get tired of reading the books. You get tired of yelling out the doors. You all these things after a certain amount of time of solitary confinement no longer distracts you now. So now you're stuck with yourself. And I got to looking at myself real thoroughly and real deeply and I faced some truths. And I learned why I was angry. Um, I got to the point where I understood it. Um, and it, 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 it put me on a different path. They understand it put me on a different path. So what are some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome in your life? Let's kind of go back. You say you're from Racine, Wisconsin. Growing up, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like I said, I, I was born there. I, my stepfather uh, was from Memphis. So we used to go back and forth from Memphis, from Racine to Memphis. Um, but I spent most of my time in Racine. It was, it was, it was drug infested. The areas that I lived in, a lot of gangs, a lot of, a lot of drugs, a lot of violence. Uh, it was a lot of little brothers and sisters that was just like me that was upset. They were, they were angry because of different uh, household circumstances, because of feeling disenfranchised and because they were isolated and confused. It was, so there's a lot of things going on. So I, gravitated towards those group of people. So it was you, your mother, your stepfather. And I have a little brother and a little sister. Um, I never had a chance. I met my real father one time when I was like 12 years old. Uh, He gave me $5 and I met him for about 10 minutes. I haven't seen him since. So during your time in the hole, did you ever sit back and reflect upon that? Absolutely. I was one of the reasons why I was so mad because I felt abandoned by him. My mom and my grandfather, I mean, my mom and my my stepfather used to get into it a lot. And um, I used to jump in and protect her. Um, And she, in my estimation, in my opinion, wrongfully, I thought that she chose him too. So now I'm abandoned by everybody. And when I run to the street, I'm embraced by some older cats that were in gangs. And I felt like they had love and respect for me. Uh, They gave me exactly what I was looking for. They gave me a father figure. They gave me some brothers. They gave me some sisters. And And they gave me what I thought was love. So... In my 13, 14, 15-year-old brain and emotional state, I embraced that. It felt like love. So you having that type of relationship with your father, right, which is virtually non-existent, are you a father now yourself? I am. And you have, so you said you have a daughter, correct? I have a daughter. How old is she? Just turned 26. So 26. So that means that you had the baby while you were in prison, correct? She was born three, four months after I was incarcerated on my, on my, uh, for my charge, for my homicide charge. How did receiving a life sentence at 17 shape your relationship with your child? I was blessed in that I had a mom that was uh, seeing the importance of me having a relationship with my daughter. 
Um, I li- I didn't meet my daughter until I was in a maximum security prison. So they brought my daughter to see me for the first time. As How old infant. was she? She was, was an infant. infant. She had to be. She had to be about nine, ten months years old, or nine, ten months old. Um, they brought her to Green Bay Correctional Institution. The first time I hugged and kissed her. Wow. Uh, over the years, I was blessed, like I say, for my mom to bring her up to see me, and she did frequently. So my relationship with my daughter was forced inside of a maximum security prison. Um, and so, but over the years, obviously, it had an impact. Once she started growing up and she had a brain of her own, she got to thinking about stuff, and it and it and it, and it created a created a, a, like a situation between her and I. So it was some years um, that we hadn't talked. Um, so once once she became a teenager, she decided not to come, and that's her decision. Um, I have absolutely no problem. That's her. That's, that's free choice to make that decision. Um, so she, so for years we didn't talk, unfortunately. Um, and that's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand when it comes to people in prison and their their children. There's a there's a there's a lot of things. Even myself committing my crime. There's there's things attached to prison sentences that we don't consider, and losing connections with our children is one of them. How do you think receiving a life sentence at 17 shaped your ability to co-parent from prison? The main reason it shaped it was that. It, it put me in a position where I, I had no decisions uh, to the extent that I can co-parent. Everything, every element of my co-parenting depended on somebody's help, right? So I can send the letters, I can send the money, which is what I did, but sending the letters and the money had little or no effect with regard to me having any kind of decisions um, in, um, in my daughter's life. And unfortunately for me, um, my daughter's mother wasn't somebody that was interested in permitting me to co-parent. Can one co-parent while they're in prison? I mean, realistically, because like you said, everything that you do and every decision that you make has to be ran by the other parent, right? And if you don't have the participation from the other parent, then you virtually can't do it, right? So it's like, you don't have a voice. You don't have a say. So what would you tell someone that's in prison right now that's trying to co-parent and is, that's going through that situation, like how to navigate that? What I would say, this is the decision I made. And at this stage, it's really the only thing that a loving father could do. And I was, my decision was to put myself in a position to tell my daughter, which I can, that I did everything in my power, every single thing in my power to be your parent from my position in prison, from the letters to the money to reaching out to the mom, reaching out to my mom, reaching out to social workers and seeing if there are any programs that would position me to see them through, a th- through my daughter through a third party. And years ago, that was a possibility. I don't know if it still is a possibility or not, but there used to be social worker or different entities that are separate from my mom or uh, the daughter of um, uh, parents or, uh, excuse me, mom or family on the other side, there was a third entity that would bring your, your child to see you. So that was an option as well. So what kind of relationship do you and your daughter have now since you've been home? Hey, since I've been home, I've been home almost three months now. Since I've been home, very quickly become my best friend, uh, the love of my life. She's absolutely phenomenal. If there is one fish that mystifies the mind of every fisherman, it's the trout. And when most people think of trout fishing, they probably think of the wide open rivers in Montana or in the mountains of Colorado. But did you know that some of the best trout fishing in the world is right here in central Wisconsin? On this week's Fishy Business, WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg go over why Central Wisconsin has such great trout fishing and what you can do to get in on the action. All right, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Now, Pat, I know last week we ended it talking a little bit about trout fishing, and that sort of inspired me. I went out this weekend, uh, and I did some trout fishing, and uh, you want to know how much I caught? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I caught nothing. I caught, I didn't oh. get a single bite uh, the whole time. And I think part of that is uh, we never ended up getting to talk about trout fishing here today. So, 
or, or last week, we didn't end up getting to talk about trout fishing. So today, I want to talk a little bit about trout. I, I hear the uh, trout fishing's been good these days. Yeah, I was actually out uh, today with my boys. Uh, we had a great afternoon. Um, hoppers, which when, when, I, when I say hoppers, I mean uh, flies that imitate grasshoppers are uh, in full season right now. So it is uh, a great time of year to get out and look for trout with grasshopper patterns. And now when I think about trout, I always think of them as a spring fish. Uh, you know, that's when they, uh, right at the beginning of the season, they are just finishing up spawning. Uh, what? Why are they uh, getting more active right now? What makes right now a good time to go out trout fishing? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, there is a lot of food available. So it's been, you know, summer now for a while, a lot of insects out there. Uh, namely uh, terrestrials, and when I say terrestrials, I mean insects like ants, beetles, crickets, and grasshoppers are all very plentiful this time of year. Uh, those are relatively large meals in the trout world, so they uh, fall in the creeks and trout take advantage of that. Uh, the other factor for it being a great time to get go, go after trout is that they know that winter's on its way, so they're trying to bulk up, and they have these easy meals that occasionally fall in the water, so they're looking up and, and looking for food. And so now, Pat, this is where things get a little bit difficult, P. Uh, just talking about where where in this area can people find trout. I know uh, central Wisconsin is actually a great place to find trout, but uh, actually, you know, talking about places, people aren't always uh, the most the most forthcoming about where there is and is not trout. So uh, just, you know, a little bit more broadly, people, part of the fun with trout is going to find them. But where can people, where approximately can people find trout in the area? Well, a lot of people don't realize this, but this part of the state, and namely between Madison and La Crosse, is the Driftless area. A lot of people know that. But it is one of the best places in the world to find trout. It is a world-class trout fishery. And right in Dane County here alone, we have over 60 miles of public access to trout streams just in Dane County. So that's a lot of trout water, and there's a lot of trout out there. Uh, Folks are looking for a way to access those fish. Uh, The local chapter of Trout Unlimited has a fantastic resource on their website. You can go to swtu.org. And if you look on the menu, scroll down a little bit, and you'll find Madison Area Trout Streams Map, and that'll bring up a Google map of every easement and uh, public access area uh, within 30 miles of Madison. So uh, you can access that, and you can actually load it on your phone. You can look that map up and get directions from, you know, uh, Siri or whatever it is that gives you directions out to a spot. Uh, There's parking areas. The map is color-coordinated to map, match the DNR's um, map uh, for the regulations, and you can click on streams, learn more about that stream. And when you're on an easement, a lot, when I say an easement, these are public access uh, permission that's been given by farmers. The DNR has purchased the rights to allow people to fish on these streams. So if you're on a stream and you come to a fence, you might wonder, oh, is this the end of where I can fish? You can look, pull up your phone and see, oh, maybe I've got a, a several hundred more yards of stream left. So it's a really great resource to get out and explore water really close to Madison. And here's a little tip. I know sometimes they'll have uh, little either white or yellow signs that sort of say public fishing easement. So if you're driving along and you see one of those little signs uh, on a bridge there or something, be sure to check it out. But they aren't always marked like that. So that's I'm going to have to take a look at that app there. So trout fishing, obviously, sort of my uh, first love when it comes to fishing. But here in Madison, there's all sorts of different kinds of fishing. So let's look at what's going on in some of the lakes here. What's happening in uh, the Madison lakes? Well, generally around town, the fishing has, I would say, slowed just a little bit, at least from what I hear at the shop. Um, The perch bite on Mendota uh, continues to be uh, very strong, but uh, the fish tend to be running on the small side, and they seem like they're getting a little pickier this time of year. Uh, bluegill fishing out on Lake Monona is very productive right now. Um, folks are catching those fish by drifting over the main lake uh, anywhere 
from 30 feet to 70 feet, but you just run a small jig off the side of your boat and just uh, drift along with that jig down about 15 or 20 feet, and you'll find fish. They're out there, and they're in good numbers, and uh, so that's a great opportunity for folks. Uh, musky fishing has also really picked up in the last couple of weeks. These cooler temperatures with cooler evenings has pushed those fish up shallow. They're looking to bulk up now for winter, so they're getting into their fall patterns. And uh, a lot of muskies are being caught on, on um, both lakes, Monona and uh, Wabisa. But um, bass action generally around the area has been uh, kind of slow lately, but uh, walleyes, too, out on Lake Mendota are moving into their well, they've been in their summer patterns, but they're starting to bulk up for fall, too, and they, uh, they're out on mid-lake humps. So Dunn's Bar, Brearley Bars, Second Point area are all great areas to check out for walleyes right now. All right, Pat, we're starting to run up against the clock here. So let's just close this out. Do you have just any final trout advice for uh, the people out there? Grasshoppers. One word, grasshoppers. That's all you need to know right now. All you need to know right now, short and easy. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, You can hear a full updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling one simple number. It's real easy to remember. It's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again so much for talking with me, and good luck out there. Nate, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and good luck to you. And in tonight's edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields wants to give you a bit of unsolicited advice. When your best friend's mother invites you to an Amish quilt auction, you gotta go. What I'm asking, I'm on the quarter half. At 150, Sold. The first one is sold, and it's on to bidder number 248 at 150. Congratulations. There she is, Nancy. Nancy. Hi, how are you? This is our neighbor, Sandy. Hi, Sandy, how are you? I could not bid on anything because I don't know what the hell he is saying. So, Nancy, this is not the first time we've chatted. In fact, I've tasted your Thanksgiving dinner three times now? Yeah. So you invited me to this. Tell me where we are. We are at the uh, Amish quilt auction raising money for the Clearwater Amish School near Albany, Wisconsin. And so talk to me about what's going on today. It just looks like to a newcomer it's kind of overwhelming. So when you come to these auctions, like what's your plan? My plan is just to enjoy it. (laughs) I love to see the quilts, and I am always amazed at uh, exactly how little the quilts actually go for. But um, there's so much else. There's a a tent with woodworking and metalworking that's being auctioned off. There's uh, food. Uh, There's homemade ice cream, pie. <laughs> you sounded more excited about the homemade ice cream and pie than the quilts almost. Oh no, the quilts the quilts are the star of the show. <laughs> and it's really it's really interesting to see um, you know, all the different patterns and the different whatever. Sometimes they sell just the quilt tops. So you can buy a quilt top and then you can finish it yourself. Otherwise, uh, and they also have like little um, crocheted and knitted afghans and stuff like that, table runners, wall hangings, not just big quilts. So Sandy, are you a newbie here or have you been coming to these for a while? Um, This is probably our third or fourth time here. And what's the draw for you? What's the attraction? It amazes me. The beautiful quilts and all the furniture and items that they make. It's just homemade goodies. Like, wow. (laughs) Now, are you a quilter? No. Do you sew at all? Mm, Not much. (laughs) (laughs) So is Nancy part of the reason why you're here, or is this just something you truly enjoy and get to experience for somebody who doesn't necessarily 
take part in the activity of quilt making? I just enjoy it, and we enjoy coming and just looking at the beautiful quilts and the, and how they auction them off, and it's it's just fun. It's a fun day. Natchez, are you are you inspired? You're a quilt maker. Are you inspired by what you see here? Do you ever get ideas and go home and think I can do that? Oh yes, I do get inspired, and sometimes I take pictures of the quilts as they're being auctioned off. And yeah, I do. Is there an etiquette to this? What do you mean by an etiquette? Is there a certain, it seems very ritualistic what's going on here. You know, is there like a sort of a mode of behavior or an etiquette that you should have when you're attending these type of auctions? Um, I don't think so. I mean, they they are very, very professional. They are very uh, quick. Uh, the, The auctions, each quilt goes very quickly. There's not much messing around. A man just got a chicken over here. It's it's a. I'm not sure. Oh, it's it. But yeah, they got a whole bunch of that stuff over that other tent. Yeah, so it's not just quilts. It's all sorts of handicraft and. Yes, it is, and particularly in that in the tent that's on the other side there. It's the Amish woodworking, you know, beautiful furniture, and like this chicken was just made <laughs> that we saw <laughs> was metal, metal working. You know, they do ironwork and whatever. Yeah. So is there anything you want to tell me about this day that I didn't ask you? It could be anything you want to talk about. It just is just an extraordinarily fun day to, to be here, to enjoy, to see another facet of life in Wisconsin. Don't forget to try the homemade ice cream. <laughs> with the homemade pie. <laughs> yeah, pie. All right, so you guys, I'll try to find you again, just so I can say goodbye at the end of the day. Where do you think you'll be? Like in here somewhere? We're gonna be. We're gonna try and find a seat in the middle there. Okay. Did you yeah. bring a chair? or Do they provide oh, chairs for you? There's uh, straw bales that you can sit on. So they've got straw bales with a wooden plank on them that you can sit on in there. Well, go ahead on, Ellie Mae Clampett. Okay. (laughs) Will do. And then we'll be eating sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we'll be at the pie if we're not in there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll see you guys in a bit. All right. So, Nancy, the bit is getting hot. And when you first got here, you said you probably weren't going to shop. But what happened since then? Well, the quilts are going for such little price that um, I think I could buy them. They're going for less than what you would pay for purchasing the fabric to make them, much less the time that goes into making them. Have you ever seen this before? Yes, I have. Do you have an idea as to what causes them to go so cheap sometimes? Oh, personally, I think that uh, boutique buyers buy them up and then resell them. But I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so you think they just come in and get them at a low price and take yeah. them in? Yeah, I do. And then the people here, considering the current economic climate, may not be able to outbid them even at lower prices. Oh, no, I think they can be outbid. But it's, it's uh, as a quilter, and I've got a ton of quilts at home, I, did, I never thought I would want to buy a quilt. But, you know, it, I hate to see them go for such a little price. Yeah. So you, you want to honor it, not only own it, but also honor the work that goes into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting. <laughs> 24 is an Alabama star top only, 98 by 112, tan white. Keep track. <laughs> yeah, you kind of keep it track like a baseball score. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Emily K. Singer. Special thanks to feature contributors D-Star, Patrick Hansberg, and Jennifer Fields. Nate Carlin engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, you don't have to miss an episode of WORT's local news. Listen to it as a podcast on your favorite podcast subscription app. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.